Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Calibre. Our discussion today is centered around the attractiveness of UK PLC for income investors. Our guest also highlights the importance of cutting through the broader market noise to focus purely on companies. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Charles Luke, manager of the Elite Rated Murray Income Trust. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your time. Um, so we've talked a couple of times before, and you've always been keen to focus on companies over the economy. It's all about the companies you pick rather than the macro. But I noticed a few weeks back you'd done a piece of work where you were talking, you, well, you've been quite vocal, really, in explaining that the UK is comfortably the most attractive market for, for income investors again. And it's simply not, you know, the long-term case that it's the most mature. Could you maybe explain to the listeners why? Yeah, so I, I guess I was really trying to look at that from the perspective of investors selling UK equity income to buy uh, global equities. And I think I, I, I'd make three points, really. So the first one is that the UK itself is a very international market. So around 75% of revenues earned by companies listed in the UK are actually from overseas. So the majority of earnings are from outside the UK. So in other words, investing in the UK is investing mostly mostly globally. So that's the first point. The second point is that um, UK valuations uh, are at the moment attractive in, in absolute terms. So the All Share Index trades on a PE of around um, 11 times earnings, which is um, cheap relative to history and relative to other markets. Um, and when you adjust for different sector compositions of regional equity markets, UK equities are around about 15 to 20% cheaper than, than global equities. And then the third point is really specifically from, a, from an income perspective. So the UK market has a dividend yield of about 4%, which is above other regional equity markets. Um, it's got good dividend cover. And also, you, know, you don't have to pay withholding tax on the income from, um, from companies overseas. Um, so that, that would be the sort of the third point. So UK itself is very international. UK valuations are attractive, and from an income perspective, you know the UK is also attractive. And then I think for, for Murray Income, appreciating that there are certain industries that aren't represented in the UK, you know we can invest in those too with our sort of small overseas budget. Um, and and the other point, I think, just just to to, to highlight that the shares. At the moment, are trading on a, on a generous discount to NAV. So you, you effectively get this sort of double discount of the UK market, which is cheap, and the trust shares, which are trading on a generous discount to, to their NAV. I wanted to touch on a couple of specific sort of milestones that the trust has hit this year. I mean, obviously, it's the 100th year of the trust, but also you've recently announced 50 years of dividend growth. Um, I wanted to focus specifically on the latter. Could you maybe just talk us through? How you've looked to continue this trend during your sort of tenure on the trust, and and also how how challenging it was during a challenging period like COVID, which probably is about as tough as any sort of environment to do something like that. And maybe just give us some insight onto that, please. Yeah. So if you um, you know, if you look at the long term and think about the reasons why the trust has been able to you know, great seven for fifty consecutive years, I think pr- probably two or three main reasons. And I think the first one is that the portfolio has generally been focused on a, a sort of diversified selection of good, good quality businesses. So that is actually something that's particularly helpful in more difficult times such as COVID, as these, well, the sorts of companies in the portfolio tend to have less volatile earning streams and they're more likely to fulfill their, their dividend aspirations. So 
that's certainly been helpful, the focus on good quality companies. And I think, sort of secondly, um, if you look at what's happened to Sterling over the last 50 years and, 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 um, and also from the time that I started to manage the trust was 17 years ago, then Sterling has weakened. And, um, you know, as we've discussed, given the amount of revenues in the UK market from overseas, that's very helpful given the, the dividend from our income is paid in, in pence in Sterling. And then just finally, I think the investment trust structure has been really helpful in terms of maintaining that uh, long period of dividend growth. So we can use revenue reserves to fill in the gaps where dividends that the trust pays um, in a particular have, have exceeded earnings to maintain the, the dividend growth. Um, but it's probably worth saying that you know, in the 50 years um, of dividend growth, we've used the revenue reserve, I think, eight times and in total paid out about 830 pence worth of dividends. And of that, just 10 pence has come from the revenue reserves. So it's, it's sort of really a combination of those three factors, the, the focus on good quality companies, the weakness of sterling and the, and the benefits of the, the investment trust structure that has, um, has generated that, that really strong long-term track record for really dividend growth. And just quickly for the listeners, um, the, the revenue reserve has been rebuilt quite well post-COVID, hasn't it? It's almost back to the levels it was before? or Yeah, so it currently stands at about 55% of the, of the full, year, um, full year dividend. Okay. Um, another quote from you that I'm going to ask you about. Uh, you've said that you've, um, the more you've done this job, the more it's been about sort of focusing on quality companies and, and doing nothing despite the noise. Um, the market has been very noisy in the last 18 months with rising interest rates and rising inflation, lots of panic about the impact on sterling, fear about mortgages, all that sort of thing. How, how have you handled that on this occasion? Yeah, so I think if you, if you just take a step back and you look at the best performing companies in the market over the long run, and, and I guess it shouldn't really be surprising, but they tend to be high quality businesses with good growth and, and high returns on capital. So ideally, what you want to do is just find these companies, hold them for the long term, you reduce frictional costs and, and, and benefit from their compounding effect. Um, and you know, when you look at the long-term macro impacts on those companies, you know, like inflation or interest rates, it, it's not easy to divine any sort of um, impact. And, and I guess it kind of goes back to what Benjamin Graham said. He, he has this quote, which is, in the short run, the market's a voting machine, in the long run, a weighing machine. So if you can find companies that can grow their earnings over the long term, you will do well. Um, having said that, unfortunately, um, you know, doing that is one of those things that's, sim that's simple but not easy, because all sorts of things can change that aren't macro factors per se. So that might be regulations or technologies or management or balance sheets or poor M&A. And you can experience you know, periods of underperformance where there's pressure to change style. So it, it's not easy to do nothing, but I do think it's it's best to focus on the long term where where possible. Um, you mentioned M&A there. Let's, let's talk about that briefly. Um, UK has been cheap for a number of years, but then there's cheap and then there's very cheap and then there's ridiculously cheap. I'm not sure how you, it's obviously somewhere towards the latter end at the moment. I mean, have You've seen a lot of M&A on the trust. I mean, obviously, there's private equity companies looking and sniffing around at how cheap the UK is. I mean, is it all welcome? Is it all unwelcome? Give, give us a bit of an insight into what you've seen on the trust and have you been pushing back on any of it? Just, just some insight on that, please. Mm. So uh, in, in the last um, 24, 30 months or so, we've had nine companies in the portfolio that have been taken over. 
Um, the majority of those buy by private equity. And I think private equity typically looks for the same sort of characteristics that we do in a company. So things like an experienced management team, strong balance sheet, um, low, low CapEx requirements, stable cash flows, good competitive positions, and, and, and decent growth opportunities, not, not least really because you know, all of those are helpful in terms of an exit route or crystallizing value for private equity. And, and of the companies that have been taken over, I think you know, the prices paid really have been pretty fair, um, but we're very happy to make a fuss you know, if, we think, uh, if we think they're not. Okay. Um, as I mentioned at the start, it's um, very much companies over economy for you. So it would only be fair to talk about a few of the companies in the portfolio and some recent additions in particular. One of them is Games Workshop, which is a name that we come across quite a few times with investment managers, but I've never actually talked about them before with you. Um, interesting that you've not actually held it before. Maybe just tell us why now and and where is the growth now versus perhaps a couple of years ago or a few years ago? Is, that, is that, Are they doing new things that are particularly interesting? Yeah, so, so Games Workshop had been on the radar for quite some time, but um, it always looked a little bit expensive. Um, then around about this time last year, um, it derated, um, and that's when we took the opportunity to introduce the company in the portfolio. And um, we like it because it has strong IP, uh, loyal customers, it makes high margins on a, on a relatively low cost to produce um, item, which are the sort of tabletop models. Um, and in future growth should come from um, a, a potential Amazon TV series, um, they're expanding licensing agreements into areas such as computer games. Um, every couple of years, two or three years, they have a, a new edition of, um, of uh, an update to Warhammer. Um, and, and also, I think sort of geographical expansion, um, particularly in the North America and, and Asia, should also um, you know, generate good, um, good growth for the future of the, for, the, for the company. Okay. Um, another company is Genus, which is an animal genetics company that sort of sells gene-edited animals for breeding. They're developing a new product, which I believe is all to do with virus-resistant pigs. I will give you the floor, and I will let you tell us all about that to the listeners. Yes, thank you. Thanks. So Genus is um, is the global leader in porcine genetics, uh, and also um, uh, also does bovine genetics. But on the porcine side. It's developed a pig which is resistant to a, a nasty virus called, um, or shortened to PERS, which stands for porcine reproduction and respiratory syndrome. Um, and in the US alone, that, that's estimated to cost the industry about $600 million a year. Um, and that, uh, that, that amount of money should be uh, able to be saved with the rollout um, over the, probably the next three to four years of um, genuses PERS-resistant pig. Um, it does first need to get uh, regulatory approval, but we've seen um, um, some of the first instances of that already. But the, the sort of two main markets where, um, which would be very helpful, clearly is the US and also China. Uh, and you know, overall, um, when the benefits of the post-resistant pig um, are felt, it has the potential to to really quite significantly enhance the earnings of the company, um, which um, you know makes it very attractive from our perspective. Uh, we mentioned earlier, or you talked to us earlier about the international flavour that you've got in the portfolio, not just in terms of the revenues, but also some of the companies you can also hold. That allows you to look at areas where perhaps the UK is not as prominent, technology being the obvious example. Um, could you maybe give me an example or two of a couple of companies that you have in the portfolio that tap into that theme? 
Uh, yep. So, so um, we can invest up to to twenty percent of the portfolio in in overseas listed companies, and um, that, that's sort of helpful for for three reasons. Um, firstly, to find better quality versions of UK listed companies. Secondly, to diversify risk in concentrated sectors. But but as you say, I think most importantly, I think to gain access to industries that are difficult to find in the UK market. So. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you more than two uh, two examples. But in, in the portfolio, we have holdings in in Microsoft for sort of technology exposure, Novo Nordisk for diabetes and obesity, Kone for elevators, um, VAT Group, which is a Swiss vacuum valve manufacturer for semiconductors, L'Oreal for cosmetics, LVMH for luxury goods, um, and, and finally um, a company called Acton Technology, which is a Taiwanese listed network equipment manufacturer. Um, and that benefits from the growth of um, internet data and um, and AI. Okay. Um, I guess lastly is more a message directly for the investors more than anything else. So I wondered if you just give me the the case for quality growth. I mean, I'm assuming it's no different to what the long term case is now. But obviously, you've talked about the um, the opportunity in UK equities in particular at the moment. Could you can you maybe just explain what the benefits are to that style of investing now and over the long term? Yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd actually call it sort of quality income um, rather than necessarily um, quality or growth. Um, mm. And if you if you take um, you know the benefits of marrying together quality on the one hand and, and income on the other, so you have quality which offers um, earnings resilience from strong business models and good ESG characteristics. And on the other hand, you have income, which helps to provide a sort of valuation backstop and reduces agency risk by encouraging a long-term approach by, by management teams. You have to think about the cash flows needed to continue to maintain the, you know, the dividend payments. And when, when you put quality and income together, um, you know, in the middle of the Venn diagram, what that offers is strong long-term capital growth potential um, and attractive and resilient income, which is what we're trying to do in terms of um, building that that Murray income portfolio focused on good quality companies with attractive income credentials. Charles, thank you very much for joining us today once again. Thank you, Chris, and thank you everyone for listening. The Murray Income Trust has reached a couple of notable milestones in 2023. Not only is the trust celebrating its century this year, but is also the 50th consecutive year of dividend increases for investors, which is no mean feat. We believe this is a dependable, diversified, and differentiated trust, which has delivered consistently strong performance at a time when it has been challenging for UK equities. To learn more about the Murray Income Trust, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only.